Welcome to the Freedom Hut. This is the Best of Buck Daily Podcast. The top stories of the day from the Buck Sexton Show. For more Buck, head to BuckSexton.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. Welcome, friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. Thank you so much for being here. Another busy day on the front lines of freedom. Another day in which we must hold the line. I think we're all starting to pick up on something. The warnings that people like me have been giving you for many months now about how even after a vaccine, they're not giving up all this emergency health authority. No, no, quite the opposite. That's now becoming apparent even to skeptics of those earlier warnings. We now have Dr. Fauci, who is honestly a disastrous, a disastrous statist bureaucrat and and an imbecile on policy. I don't care how much he knows about medicine. He's a moron when it comes to national public health policy. He's now saying that we're probably heading for the most severe restrictions. Stay at home orders. The government telling you you cannot leave the place where you live except under very narrowly defined circumstances. You cannot gather with other people. You cannot go to businesses other than those necessary to feed yourself and perhaps to get medical attention or supplies. That's what we're heading for. And I have so many questions. Like, why are we heading for that when we've been masking up for months and months now? Why are we heading for that with all of our social distancing and mitigation? Oh, that's right. Because we didn't do it well enough, they tell us. It's not that that stuff does not work. It does not change the trajectory of the virus once it infects a community. Not over the long term. No, it can't be that. It has to be that we we aren't listening enough, you see. That's the problem. This is a mindset that you do often come across in countries where there is no voice of the people in government. This this is a mindset that you will you will hear in places where the answer from the government to why should we do that is just a version of because I said so. That's where we are now. Because I said so. You can't open your business. If you do, we'll fine you. If you're a restaurant, we'll take your liquor license or we'll just shut you down entirely. We'll ruin you. Based on what? You're a health risk. Ah, yes, a health risk, say the people who keep breaking the very quarantine rules they want to inflict upon the rest of us. Hypocrisy, increasingly, as you are seeing, is the point. But ultimately, this is about showing everybody, now that we've all been sufficiently terrified by the media, now that they may have managed to use this to take what should have been an easy reelection for Donald Trump away from him. I know the fight is still ongoing, friends, but let's be honest, this is not looking great. They used COVID for that purpose, but there's a much bigger purpose behind it, too. The policies around it, the mentality here. And you're starting to see how it all comes together. Joe Biden talks about build back better. That's the slogan. That's the phrase. Why isn't it just return to normal life? Isn't that what we all want? We just want our freedoms back. We just want the world that was taken away from us under the guise of bureaucrats saving all of our lives. What lives did they save here? 
what did they actually do? What did they accomplish? There's no accounting for that. And if you point out the horrific mistakes in the early days from the public health experts, they say everybody makes mistakes, but listen to us now or else. They don't see the problem with that. They don't see how that doesn't sit well with a whole lot of us. And then that brings me to this Build Back Better plan. A crisis is an opportunity. We all know this. The Obama administration made that clear. But in general, people who believe in the plan, meaning that really smart folks will gather together and make decisions for everybody else. Also known as central planning, also known as the beating heart of Marxism and socialism. People that really believe in the plan know that the best time to implement it is when everyone is scared, when things have gone poorly for other reasons or, or things that are even out of the state's control, as we see in this case. Although we've made it worse with these lockdowns, I think that's apparent at this, at this phase. Notice that they don't even try to explain why we're having more cases than ever before. It's spreading all over the country and mass compliance is at its all-time high. They see no dissonance here. They see no problem whatsoever. They've created a perception. Smart people wear masks. That's what they've done. Right? Like the sheep in George Orwell's Animal Farm. Four legs good, two legs bad. Remember? You've all read it. Wear a mask, Cuomo yells at you. All the politicians yell this. Wear a mask. Joe Biden, where is your mask? I'm wearing a mask. I wear two masks now, Joe Biden says. And I'm not kidding. He said it yesterday. Now, it's not enough. The virtue signaling thrill is not enough from a single cloth placed across your face. You got to double up on that cloth. To that, I say, oh, yeah, Joe Biden, I'm going to start wearing three masks. Triple mask is where it's at. These people are buffoons, but they're dangerous. They don't think for themselves, but they still want to make you do their bidding. It's all about the collective and it's all about that plan that I was telling you about before. And you're seeing this on a broader scale. Otherwise, how, how can you explain that now when Boris Johnson gives a speech, the prime minister of the UK, build back better is behind him in Canada at the Institute. This was all, all shared by uh, Professor Weinstein on his Twitter account. Build back better in Canada. The Institute for European Environmental Policy, the OECD, tackling coronavirus, contributing to a global effort, building back better. Prime Minister Imran Khan uh, having a, a spokesperson in Pakistan stand in front of a sign that says build back better. Starting to see this. UK, Canada, international organizations, OECD. I mean, we're talking, folks, grade A1 globalists here. This is a term we're going to have to start using more. We've used it in the past, but now we're seeing with the possibility of a Trump exit from the world stage, the globalists want to come rushing back in. Why do we not like what the globalists want for us? What's the problem with it? Central planning for nation states results in failure, results in the destruction of freedom, of individual choice, and therefore of a degree of individual, individual identity, autonomy. 
They start to chip away at your very soul. We're not machines. We don't exist to do what other people in far off offices tell us to do. There should only be the most universally applicable standards and guidelines set, contracts enforced, and that's it. We're supposed to be able to make other choices for ourselves. And as we know, and the founders certainly understood this, which is why we have federal, state, and local levels, which is why we have the House of Representatives, which is why we have a Senate, which is why we have a separate judiciary, that you don't want the consolidation of power in very few hands because it results in tyranny as well as bad decision-making. There is no one person, there is no one entity Unless all of a sudden we have a return of the Messiah that is in a position to tell everybody what to do, what's best and what's right without catastrophically bad outcomes. So if you look at central planning, if you look at collectivism as it plays out in a nation state, now imagine you're magnifying that out all over the world. One world policy. You can have one world principles, but what does a one world policy look like, right? And they always start with the one and then try to move to the other. And we see that it's a failure. They're unable to do it, but that never stops them. They keep wanting to assert their will. They keep wanting to tell you what to do, whether it's about energy, whether it's about our own elections, international monitors looking at what we're doing. Any number of issues where the U.N., international consensus, global opinion are supposed to influence us. I always think it's it's hilarious when journalists will show what the opinion is of some European country or European countries about our election. I'm pretty sure we won a revolution starting in 1776, so we could not give a crap what the Brits or the French or the Germans or anybody else. And we had to win a few wars against the Germans for that right, too. Or anybody else thinks about our politicians. In fact, I'm, I'm quite certain of it. I think my history is sound here. I don't care at all. But build back better as a global rallying cry with COVID should make you very ill at ease. We just want them to stop what they are doing because they are not helping. And what they are telling you is, oh, you're going to get more of this and you're going to get a whole lot more of other stuff that we're planning A lot of it doesn't even have to do with COVID. This is out of the Saul Alinsky playbook in Rules for Radicals as well. Just get a group, get a population, get people mobilized around one issue, and then you have a mobilized group that you can use for any other issue. Get people fearful and obedient, get them to bend the knee on COVID-19 lockdowns, which is what they're about to do again. And then it becomes so much easier to tell them we're also going to do the following for your benefit. You listened to us on COVID and we kept you safe, even though they didn't and they made things worse. This is the plan. Described accurately, they would tell you that the plan, the centrally planned effort of a would-be incoming Biden administration and all of the international institutions and globalists that it will lean on in order to erode your rights and your autonomy, they will tell you that this is going to make everything so, so much better. They're going to improve everything in your life. 
They're telling you that as they're making your life more miserable and more difficult. So why should you listen to them? Ultimately, this rests on coercion. That's the problem with the leftist approach, with the collectivist approach. These are arguments that should be settled through an established process of people voting and also taking actions that are within the scope of a constitution that is written in plain language that we can all understand. That they seek to subvert all of that. They either say the constitution doesn't matter. It's an old document written by people that we shouldn't listen to anymore. Or they say that elections only count when they win. Or they say that our election doesn't even really matter all that much as long as we have people in charge who will take orders and be a part of this globalist collective, then everything is going to get so much better for us here. We are heading into a miserable, cold winter of moronic Democrat policies with COVID where they're just going to become even more unhinged and enraged. They will continue, I can assure you, to blame Trump and Trump supporters all the way through January, all the way through the no matter who's in charge in this country through the end of the winter, because otherwise they'd have to turn around and realize that they're just not that smart and they've been swindled. They've been fooled. And no one likes that feeling. That Fauci isn't some saint that we should all we should all elevate as the great hero of the covid-19 pandemic. No, this guy should be thought of as somebody deserving of scorn. I mean, he's he's truly failed in his charge here. At a minimum, he should have the humility to say, I've been wrong on key stuff. I don't really know what to do anymore. Somebody else should step up and be advising you guys. My policy declarations are absurd. They're idiotic. We're going to have people masking up after the vaccine. We're going to have people continue to do this once there's no real epidemiological basis for them to be worried about the risk. It's long since past the time when he should have stepped aside, but now you're seeing it. Of course, he's not going to step aside. Of course, the people that have been screaming at you to wear a cloth mask loosely fitted around your face sometimes, usually in in public, so you can show what a great Democrat you are. Or because you don't want people to spit at you and yell at you and scream at you because you're one of the bad people that's even though there's a 99 percent chance you're just a healthy person walking around living your life. You're treated like some kind of vector of the plague. It's really not about this in the end. It's about the massive shift in our mentality, the way that we have let our liberties slip through our fingers with barely a peep of protest. And they see an opening here. It's not just about the Great Reset. It's a remaking of society. We've been conditioned now to do whatever the government tells us about some of the most personal, intimate aspects of our lives. Who you spend the holidays with? The government and its bureaucrats thinks that it has that mandate now. This is a power that the Obamaite socialists of a few years ago could have barely dreamed of. And now the Biden acolytes are all getting ready to implement this, the, the, the Build Back Better plan, also known as the eradicate your freedom, your liberty, and the constitutional protections that have been around for a couple of hundred years plan. Thanks for listening to the Best of Buck Daily Podcast. 
Get more from Buck by following him on social media at Buck Sexton on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And don't forget to visit BuckSexton.com. What the hell are you doing here? Yeah, it could be their last Thanksgiving. If you expose them to people who aren't wearing masks, who aren't socially distancing, and haven't been doing so, and haven't gotten tested. Because they somehow think they don't want to get in on the con of COVID. You know, you want to hide on state news, you do it. But someday, you're going to have to deal with real questions. And either you're going to come on a show or you're going to do it. But you know what? We may go back to old school. And maybe the questions will come find you. Maybe when you're living your life nice and easy, because you don't have the concerns that these same people that you're telling to rise up, that they have. Maybe the questions will come and find you, because you have to answer for that kind of guidance, let alone as a doctor. Do no harm. Invite grandma. This could be her last Thanksgiving. Yeah, if you invite her to a place where she can get sick and die. Almost like Bro Cuomo over at CNN is threatening, is threatening uh, Dr. Scott Atlas here with at least ambush questions outside of his home or something, right? Because he says, enjoy your Thanksgiving. Dr. Fauci said, have a talk about the risks. Dr. Atlas says, see your grandparents. Don't, don't be crazy. Like, nothing is perfect and you could end up, you know, does Cuomo ever look at the at the data that shows that a vast majority of the people who are dying from covid are at high risk of dying from any number of other natural causes imminently over people in their 80s? Almost half of the people who have died of covid in the last month or so are people who are in or above their 80s. Now, that's not to say that you know, I, I hate that we have to say this. Every life is precious. You know, I still remember I still get very sad when I think about the loss of all four of my grandparents. Um, but I wouldn't have told them stay in your nursing home for which they weren't in nursing homes. But regardless, I wouldn't have said, you know, stay alone in your home. Don't see anyone. You're 84. We can't let you see anyone for the next 18 months, maybe the next two years. Sorry, it's not safe. Stay home alone. How about that? Is that the life that Governor Cuomo and his idiot brother over at CNN want for everybody? Because that's the life that they're insisting that we all have. Can't see your grandparents. Can't actually take any of these risks. Trump had COVID, was fine in three days. Life's not perfect. Some people get this and they die. Very few as a percentage. And yet we have all of society being told to be in this panic over this. Don't have Thanksgiving. Don't have Christmas. Don't see people. Don't live your lives. Yeah, if you're sick, if I had the flu five years ago, Okay, I would not have gone to my family Thanksgiving. If you're sick, clearly stay away from people. But what they're talking about are the risks of asymptomatic transmission among people in a family and then the risk of somebody in the family getting it and actually dying from it as a result. There are a lot of folks out there who are going to look at that and if they understand the real numbers, the real data and say, okay, we're we're just going to we're going to live our lives. We're going to do this. We're going to see each other. We're willing to do that anyway. Knowing in any given year, you could have showed up at Thanksgiving and given grandma the flu and she could have died from that. That has been true. And people say, oh, you would know. That's not true because the flu is, tr- is at least 24 hours before you show symptoms. You can spread it, which is one of the reasons why the flu does spread widely. So you, that could have happened in any given year. But do you live your life based on that fear? And let's also remember that COVID treatment 
has gotten substantially better, which means the risk now is considerably less, even for those at high risk, than it was back in April and May and March of this past year. And there's a, there are vaccines coming on the horizon, which I know doesn't change your risk calculation for right now, but it does mean that we are making real scientific progress against this actual science. And I, I thought I thought wear a mask was all you had to do. Wearing a mask was going to stop this thing cold in its tracks. That's what we were told for months and months and months. You mean that didn't work? Oh, we didn't wear masks enough. They'll tell us that's bull. That's nonsense. But they're not going to change because there's so much behind this. Isn't it fun for them to be able to go around and lecture everybody? Don't they get some some joy out of being the heroes here that stand up for science? We believe the science. Wear a mask, Cuomo says. Right. Okay. We've been doing that. Have they been doing that? Have they been social distancing? Have some of the very people who are making decisions about using the force of the state to make you do things right now because of COVID risk, have they, I'm just, I'm wondering, I'm really, ask, I'm really asking, have they been setting a good example? The mayor of Chicago, remember Lori Lightfoot, uh, somebody who is deeply unimpressive, that's fair to say, true of many mayors, right? I mean, she's probably a better mayor than de Blasio because she at least got upset when there was widespread looting of the downtown high end shopping district in Chicago. She realized that's a bad look for her city and she was actually kind of upset about it. So I guess she's not completely insane. Whereas de Blasio views it a little bit of, you know, settling the score for social justice. Got to have some looting and rioting sometimes. You know, it's just the the price the hardworking people of New York City have to pay for the left wing lunatics in their midst. But Lori Lightfoot, she she got the haircut when we couldn't get haircuts. Remember that? And then when asked about it, it's because she has to look good for her city. That was her answer. Um, Lori Lightfoot was out there with the big Biden protests on the streets. We had this big we had the surge of cases this week. And we're being told to change all of these aspects of our lives. You know, no thanks. They just canceled Thanksgiving parade, the Thanksgiving parade in Houston. First time that's happened in over 70 years ever since they've been doing the parade. So they're canceling parades. And I look, I, I don't like I'm not a parade person, but I think people should I think parades could can they could certainly do the parade and just tell people, you know, don't gather in large numbers on the they could still have the parade and people could watch from a distance or not. You know, they, there are ways they could do this, but no. I mean in general, I'm just an anti parade guy. Unless it's a military veterans parade, and especially if there's drums and or bank uh, bagpipes involved, then it's cool. Other parades, I'm I'm just not into. I just don't care. But here's Lori Lightfoot talking about how the Biden celebration going on there on the streets when they called the uh, the media called the victory for Joe Biden. How yeah, she was out there without a mask and she was in crowds and there were a lot of people gathered and yelling and everything else. But you know, no big deal. Sixteen. We've been saying all along, everybody has to take care. Everybody has to take precaution. I will tell you, in that big crowd a week ago, we had everybody was wearing masks. Look, at you can see the shot here. Um, mask compliance in our city is actually up very, very high. But yes, there are times when we actually do need to have 
relief and come together. And I felt like that was one of those times. That crowd was gathered whether I was there or not. But this has been a super hard year on everyone. Everyone feels traumatized. They feel um, threatened, their safety, um, and they don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. And with this new surge in cases, we have just got to step up and do the right thing. And I think people understand that. Back in the spring, when we issued these blanket stay-at-home orders, it was because we really didn't understand where the risk was, so we were trying to mitigate it everywhere. We now have a lot more data, and we can use a surgeon's knife and not just a blunt instrument uh, to try to really go at where we're seeing the biggest risk and help mitigate them. And for us right now, the biggest risk that we're seeing in our city is in these private spaces and gatherings. Or, or Trump rallies, of course. That's where the real risk is, right? Because this is what Democrats have, were telling us for months leading up the election. The, the Trump rallies are the real risk, not BLM rallies and protests and looting and rioting. That's not a risk. This has been, this has been politicized beyond recognition. I mean, this is now a, a straight-up political issue. But I, I do want to be uh, very clear here that she is basically making some absurd justification as she goes along with, you know, people need relief sometimes. But don't gather for Thanksgiving. Oh, OK. So you need relief for a Joe Biden victory dance, like literally dancing in the streets. But people shouldn't have the relief of seeing their family members over the holidays, including family members who have been particularly isolated during COVID, who have been cut off from their loved ones and, and friends and, and just human contact. Now, that that doesn't that doesn't count. Joe Biden's victory is important. Your Thanksgiving with your family is not. That's what Lori Lightfoot wants you to know. Before I move on to another case of this, I just wanted to point out, she says we're in Chicago, just just to take an example, they're doing great with masks in Chicago. They're doing great with masks in Chicago. OK. I'm so happy to hear that uh, in August you had, uh, you know, you had fifteen hundred, let's say, to two thousand cases a day in Chicago. Uh, yesterday you had eleven. Oh, I'm sorry. Fifteen thousand. Fifteen thousand as of November 13th. So a few days ago, it's the data that just popped up here. 12,000, I think, November 16th was 12,000. That's the closest one. So we've gone from, call it uh, 1,500 to 12,000, 15,000 a couple days ago. New cases. And, but we're doing great with masks. Gee, how great would we be doing without mask mandates? I, I, I asked that question in, in, all, in all honesty. She says, and she's the mayor, and she's watching it very closely, and she's a Democrat. She says, we're doing great, guys. Great masking. Okay, cool. Cases are up 7x in two months. Well, what are we to, what are we to believe? That without our amazing cloth mask policy, they'd be up 70? Is that really what we're going to think? In New York City, we didn't wear masks in February when the virus was spreading all over the city. And it didn't get up to those kinds of numbers, right? going up to 100,000 cases a day, let's say, something like that. But in Chicago, a city with 2 million instead of 8 million people, they're, they're up to 15,000 cases a day. And they're a great example of mask wearing. But like I said, that's all. And if you don't wear them, you're a bad person. In fact, it is your 
It is your patriotic duty. Play clip five. Ask a rhetorical question. Do you guys understand this? Does anybody understand why a governor would turn this into a political statement? It's about patriotism. It's about being patriotic. It's about saving lives for real. I'm not, this is not hyperbole. It's about being patriotic. And I think you're seeing more and more as this god-awful virus continues to spread almost unabated that uh, we, uh, that governors are stepping up. He says it spreads. I'm using his words now. I'm, I'm using the Democrat talking points here, and I just want explanations. Uh, he's using words like unabated. Meanwhile, we have masking going on. Meanwhile, we have masking going on in numbers that they're praising. Unabated means effectively without any stopping of it, right? With It's just... Uh, free reign to spread but our masking has been great good job with the masking but biden's saying it's spreading unabated nobody wants to see these two things in conflict though right because a whole lot of people will look like a bunch of dumbasses if we actually dig into what's ha- uh, happening here you're in the freedom hut this is the best of buck daily podcast the top stories of the day from the buck sexton show The fight is still on. This election is not yet over, despite what you're hearing in so many different places in the media. Let's hear from the campaign right now, an advisor to the campaign, senior strategic advisor, that is, our friend Steve Cortez, back in the mix. Steve, thanks for making the time for us. I appreciate it, Buck, and you are very right. When I talk about this election, we must speak in the present tense because it is ongoing. Let's not be lulled into speaking in the past tense as though it is over. Now, you've got a roughly 15,000, I think it's a little less than that, but roughly 15,000 vote margin of victory thus far. We can call it a margin of separation, perhaps, for Joe Biden in, uh, in Georgia. We just found 2,600 new votes. Just, oh, look, 2,600 votes, two for one going for Trump. Does this begin to chip away at the let's just move past this and not audit and not recheck and not recount anything, Steve? Buck, it, it certainly does. You know, obviously, this is very troubling that these votes are just happen to be missing and suddenly got found and that they overwhelmingly favor the president. Uh, you know, forgive me if I'm not shocked. Uh, right. Sort of like the police showing up in Casablanca and find out while well, there's gambling going on at Rick's. Uh, and by the way, this statistical case also backs up this anecdotal case. When I mean this statistical case, I'm saying, for example, look at the state of Georgia and the rate of rejection of mailed in ballots. Four years ago, when they uh, had about 200,000 mail-in ballots in 2016, which is a more normal rate before the pandemic, they rejected 3% of all ballots that were mailed in. They were either not registered voters, there was something invalid about the ballot itself, it wasn't signed, whatever the reason, 3% were rejected. Now this time, 1.3 million ballots in Georgia were mailed in, more than six times the 2016 total. That's not surprising given the pandemic. However, here's what is surprising and more than surprising, I think uh, damning really of the vote totals and the validity of the vote totals, that rate of rejection went down from 3% all the way to 0.24% 
of ballots were rejected. In other words, one twelfth the level, the percentage of ballots that were rejected in 2016 were rejected this time, even though with such a mammoth increase over a million point, uh, 1.1 million more ballots coming in. If anything, if there were a serious vetting of the voting going on, we would expect if anything that that percentage to actually rise, Buck, because you have so many people doing it for the first time. The fact is the percentage fell dramatically. And I believe the complete void of vetting of votes, and it wasn't contained in Georgia. Similar thing happened in Pennsylvania. As a matter of fact, the numbers are actually even more damning in Pennsylvania. Uh, this indicates that a large share of these votes are simply not valid. And the only way for us to determine if they are is a serious audit, not just a recount, not just sending them back to the machine, but an actual hand audit of these results. And in the case of Georgia, if, if we were to have the same rejection rate as 2016, 39,000 votes would be rejected instead of the only 3,000 that were. Now, where are we with the recount in Georgia? The president's been tweeting about this. We know there was some kind of recount, but he's not happy with what's going on. Can you just tell us what is the status uh, of Georgia as of today? Right. Well, listen, our, the campaign is not happy with it, obviously, and neither is the president because we're not having an honest recount there. And this is particularly disappointing because we have a supposedly Republican secretary of state. Uh, Georgia, while it is a swing state, uh, statewide has been electing Republicans lately. So we would expect better than this. But the unfortunate reality is we know that the recounts have not been, that it has been a recount rather than an auditing. And that's, again, a, a crucial difference here. We're not saying just put the numbers through the machine again. You know, we realize that you're going to come up with a very similar number there. You're going to have a very tiny sampling of just honest human error. You know, you'll change a few hundred votes. That's normal for a just quote recount. What we're talking about is an audit. And again, I think an audit for, for very legitimate means. I think the statistical case for the improbability of Joe Biden's win is really compelling. And one of the reasons, by the way, let me give you another stat related to Georgia. Let's give you some of the numbers. These Biden-only ballots nationwide, and what I mean by Biden-only is people who supposedly voted for Joe Biden and then for no one else down ticket. Now, that's a rare phenomenon. It certainly is rare even in 2020 outside of the swing states. However, there are a total of 450,000 at least of these Biden-only ballots in America. Uh, they are predominantly in these swing states, which seems far too convenient. And to get specific on Georgia, uh, where we have very contentious Senate races, obviously both races are heading into runoff, uh, but where you had highly contentious Senate races with a lot of interest in races, plural, because there's two of them, uh, it's really telling that if you look at the Biden-only votes, there were 95,000 Biden-only ballots in the state of Georgia, where somebody voted for Biden and then not down ballot, allegedly. If we compare that to Trump, no such phenomenon. Out of the 2.4 million votes that Donald Trump got, uh, of those, only 818 people voted for Trump only, and then nobody down ballot. So I mean, think about that disparity. Fewer than 1,000 people voted for Trump only. 95,000 supposedly voted for Biden only. Uh, look, that just, it reeks, <laughs> let's just be honest about it, and again, in and of itself, I want to be fair, that is not conclusive in and of itself. It does not prove fraud, but it sure does smell bad and it sure does point uh, to a phenomenon that's pretty hard for any reasonable person to explain in the state of Georgia. Now, we're speaking to Steve Cortez, senior strategic advisor to the Trump campaign. Steve, tell me this. Why haven't we, you know, we, we have all these stories, all this sort of, you know, the affidavits and all this about fraud. But I have not yet seen the aha. Here is proof 
of a fraud. We've seen proof of irregularity. No question about that. Right. When you're finding ballots, when they're, you know, there's no there. And by the way, anyone who says there were not going to be at least irregularities in an election with 150 million, give or take ballots cast. I mean, they're living in a fantasy world. Right. So we know there are irregularities and that those those should be corrected. And that means ballots are going to go one side or the other. Okay, fine. But intentional fraud. Are we just. You know, we have all these people saying, I saw this, I saw that. Are we really going to be able to prove any of this? You know, but I believe you will. And here's what I would tell you. Those those cases of what I would call micro fraud are important. You know, a, a dead person voting, an illegal immigrant voting. But I'll be the first to concede that that will not change the election. Now, we should clean that up and people should be punished and people should end up in handcuffs when they have broken election laws. That's serious. But but I will agree with you that that's that is not the smoking gun of macro fraud. Right. The macro fraud that we're talking about, I think there are two instances here, both of which are still to be argued in federal court. So I would I would tell folks out there to to hold tight because these arguments have not even started yet. Um, And there are really two elements to them. One is where hundreds of thousands of ballots uh, illegally counted meaning that there were no Republican observers, that there was no vetting, as I talked about, in terms of the percentages, insanely low percentages of rejection rates. And Rudy Giuliani, primarily in terms of the public uh, face of the campaign, has been making this case that in Pennsylvania, there are as many as 600,000 plus ballots that are simply not valid, not according to our opinion of the Trump campaign, according to Pennsylvania law. So that's uh, the macro case. And then the perhaps even more damning one, um, and Sidney Powell has really been the, the tip of the spear on this one, is the voting software. Now, she has said, and I think she has enormous credibility, she's one of the best lawyers in America, she certainly has a track record of meaning what she says publicly and eventually backing it with evidence. And I only say eventually because she simply does not want to make that evidence public yet because it's about to be argued in court. Uh, but Sidney Powell has been very, very clear in her in her media appearances that she has absolute proof of cheating going on in a systemic way regarding Dominion software and perhaps other vote uh, vote vendor companies that are out there, but primarily Dominion. And it really does, uh, when, when I talk about the statistical improbability of the case, that alone does not prove that there was fraud, but it points us toward fraud, right? And I think a reasonable person says we're gonna take the compelling circumstantial case and then take a more serious look at things that can actually be proven as fraudulent. So I am, like everybody else, awaiting those arguments to be made in court. But I'm very, very confident that Sidney Powell and others on the Trump legal team are going to make a compelling case that there wasn't just circumstantial fraud, evidence of fraud, but actual provable evidence. And I, I encourage everybody out there, encourage your audience uh, to be patient in that regard. I mean, yes, we do have to move quickly, um, but we also can't build cases that are that are rock solid uh, in a matter of hours. And so, you know, we realize the clock is ticking. We realize December 8th and December 14th are critical deadlines for the Electoral College. And I can assure you everyone of the Trump campaign is, is working around the clock. But I can also assure you that the case has to be rock solid, the constitutional case. I believe eventually that several of these states, Pennsylvania included, will not be able to certify electors. And I believe we're going to be in for a contingent election which is not the optimal choice, but but it's also hardly without historical precedent. And it is something that is constitutionally uh, and legally mandated in certain cases. I believe that's where we're going to end up. And I really believe that's how the president is going to end up with reelection. So let's just for everyone listening. And we're speaking to Steve Cortez, who's a senior strategic advisor to the Trump 2020 campaign. Steve, you're saying that this these legal challenges may result in a situation where it comes down to not the Electoral College votes cast in the end, but it'll be the House of Representatives. Is that what you think may happen? 
I believe so. Now, again, that look, that that's not official. I'm speaking right. That's that's an analysis and projection. So everyone's clear. This is your Correct. assessment. But go ahead. Correct. Correct. And of course, none of us know, right? But I, in my view, that is the most likely scenario. Is that unfortunately, and it's the fault of the governors of some of these states. For example, Governor Wolf of Pennsylvania, who took it upon himself to unilaterally change the election procedures of his state, something he is not allowed to do by law nor by the U.S. Constitution, but he did it anyway. Unfortunately, his state Supreme Court backed him in that. But because of that unlawful act, uh, he created a system where I believe it's going to be nearly impossible to certify the votes and to send proper electors to the United States Congress. Now, again, this has happened before historically, and we we have procedures that trust the process. I mean, this has happened in America. It may happen again. We'll see. But that is my uh, my projection. But I think it's an educated one is that it will be difficult for either side to reach 270 in terms of electoral votes. And if that happens, the vote then goes to the House of Representatives, where each state gets an equal vote. So Wyoming, our smallest state by population, gets one vote, as does California, our most populous. Um, In that case, there are 26 delegations controlled by Republicans. If party lines hold, the president would then be elected, uh, re-elected president of the United States. Again, look, it's not optimal, but it's not unprecedented. Um, And it's not a crisis. It doesn't mean that we can't go that route if we need to. Uh, But there's a lot of steps between here and there. And, you know, all I'm saying, too, is that there is there are enough irregularities on an anecdotal basis. There is enough statistical evidence out there uh, making a circumstantial case that we should doubt these returns. And then we're going to see about the legal case, the full legal case regarding wholesale macro fraud that the Trump campaign can make. And by the way, I'm not privy to that. Uh, no one is outside of that legal team, but but we all will soon be privy to it in the country. And we will assess it as a country, as a people, and as will, most importantly, the courts, very likely the Supreme Court. And from there, I think we find out who's truly going to be president of the United States. But I would caution anybody who believes that there is a president-elect right now. There is not a president-elect. Steve, can we hold you for one second? So I just want to give everybody a, a, a quick moment to catch their breath. I want to come back and ask you, Just a a few questions about the Trump win among Latinos relative to where the GOP is. Can you give us a sec for that? You bet. bet. All right. We got Steve Cortez. He is a senior strategic advisor to the Trump campaign. We'll be back with him in just a moment. Thanks for listening to the Best of Buck Daily podcast. For more Buck, head to BuckSexton.com. And remember to subscribe to the podcast. Cue all the hysteria out there now over how if Trump doesn't just hand over the keys to the White House tomorrow, we're all going to die of COVID because of the delay. Oh, my gosh. Right. I mean, what they've used COVID for so many things. Why not have this be the secret to convincing everybody that Trump's delay is costing lives? His delay in conceding. That's really what this is all about. You're hearing a lot of this of this now. Uh, Joe Biden's out there. He's he's you know giving his team's talking points. And then the media will reflect those talking points back to him with questions that are effectively given everything that you've said is true. How awful is Trump really? And what should we do to continue to talk about his awfulness in the press? But but first, let's start with what Joe's contention is here. Here's Joe Biden. Joe Biden. No joke. No joke, period, period. I mean, I'm just here saying stuff that people tell me to say, and I've been doing it for 40 years. Play clip one. It's great news that Moderna and Pfizer have each come up with vaccines that are in excess of 90% effectiveness. And getting the vaccine and a vaccination 
though, are two different things. Everyone on our call today, in our Zoom today, agreed that the sooner we have access to the administration's distribution plan, the sooner this transition would be smoothly move forward. And, you know, as we battle COVID, we also make sure the business and workers have the tools, the resources, the national guidance and health and safety standards to operate safely. And we can do that. We can bring Democrats and Republicans together, work with business and labor to deliver those necessary resources. And for millions of Americans who've lost hours and wages or have lost their jobs, we all agreed on our call that we can deliver immediate relief. You know what would help in delivering immediate relief if Nancy Pelosi stopped holding relief hostage to her outlandish demands to bail out cities that were running up huge debts even before the COVID crisis. But he's not going to talk about that. No, instead, what you get from Joe Biden is we just want to know what their vaccine rollout plan is, man. We, we just want to know what what's going on with that. One issue with it. We all understand what that would turn into, right? They're saying they want to know the vaccine rollout plan so that there can be a smoother transition. And keep in mind that Trump hasn't even accepted that there is necessarily there could be, but a transition coming. And that's the part of this that they're not going to that's not going to shift. That's not going to change. But what we all know they would do the moment that the Trump team told them what the transition plan and what the uh, vaccine plans are. They would start criticizing it publicly, trashing it. Oh, my gosh. Trump is just putting forward this vaccine distribution plan that privileges, you know, white cisgender patriarchy or something. You know, there would be some. Oh, my gosh. You know, oh, it's only the vaccines only for the rich. Uh, what? It's going to nursing homes and healthcare providers. Oh, you know, whatever it may be. Right. That's that's what they're going to tell us. So it just opens up all kinds of criticism. They got plenty of time. Remember, they're going to be handed a plan if there is a transition of what the vaccine is supposed to be. But really, this is all them saying this is all the storyline of we would do a better job and any problems in the vaccine distribution that do come up if there's a Biden presidency will immediately be blamed upon Trump and his unwillingness to pass the plans to them now so they can come up with their fixes to the plan, even though there's zero reason to believe that Joe Biden and the clowns that he is filling in in slots around him already would be better at this. No reason to believe it whatsoever. Who just created the public-private partnership to get us to this stage? Who, who created that? That's right. It was the Trump administration. Right? It was President Trump that came up with this Operation Warp Speed with his advisors, I understand, marshalling the experience and the knowledge of experts around him. But they were able to do that, and you'll notice they get no benefit as a result. They have, there's no willingness to say, wow, good job, Trump and team. You guys probably know what you're doing. Let us know about this vaccine plan when you can, because we want to make sure we do a great job of implementing it when Joe Biden takes over. I'm talking about from the perspective of the Biden team. That's that would be a reasonable position. No, their position is, oh, this is an outrage. He's not conceding. He's not giving us what we need. He's not doing what we tell him to do. It's terrible. It's awful. And the media is, of course, playing along with the whole thing. Here's a 
NBC News reporter that I mean, this is a this is a great question because this is a reminder. You could call this, you know, the the Obama, the, the Obama administration era of journalism questions. Right. This is the kind of stuff you'd see when they'd ask Obama, sir, I know this is going to be a tough one, but what's it like to have to deal with the evil and stupid Republicans when you yourself are a super genius that everybody should bow down to and beg forgiveness from for just not being as awesome as you. That was 95% of mainstream journos for eight years. It was, it was embarrassing. It was debasing. I mean, just as a human being, to be so, so just to be always supplicating, you know, to be so just toadies all the time. But anyway, you're going to see a lot of that if there if there is a Biden administration. And here's NBC, uh, NBC reporter who's doing a great example of what you can expect for Biden. Same kind of treatment play, too. Good to see you. I want to start with a question about uh, your pandemic planning and then a question about your economic plan. You, you spoke about the need to access the outgoing administration's covid vaccine distribution plans. What do you see as the biggest threat to your transition right now, given President Trump's unprecedented attempt to obstruct and delay a smooth transfer of power? More people may die. Isn't that amazing? Think about all the ways that he showed the editorial line that he's taking in that question, the unprecedented obstruction that's going on. What are the threats to you saving so many lives? Joe Biden is an imbecile. He is not a smart person. He does not have good judgment. He is not knowledgeable about anything that helps the public with the policies that he implements. I just want to scream. No one thinks this guy's impressive, but now they're all going to pretend like he is. Democrats until five minutes ago knew that he was a buffoon, but he'd been around forever. And, you know, he was there to hold Obama's coat for eight years. And now all of a sudden we're supposed to think that he's the dear leader. Oh, he's amazing. He's going to save us. It wasn't that question. That question was perfect. Given how uh, how awful and horrible Trump is. What are you going to do to save more lives in the face of his efforts to kill more people because he's awful? Journos, baby. That's how they do it. That's how they get down. And Biden's really no better. I mean, Biden, of course, I love it. He goes, people will die. Yeah. yeah, sure. That's right. Everyone's going to die because Trump. I'm just going to tell you this. You know how the anti-war movement disappeared under Obama? I mean, there were a couple of, and hey, at least they're consistent. There were a couple of code pink crazy ladies running around occasionally during the Obama administration. They had no institutional support. The editorial page, the New York Times, CNN, nothing. People don't even know that Obama, just to look like he wasn't some wimp on national security who didn't know anything, surged over 100,000 troops in Afghanistan and announced a withdrawal at the same time of the surge, so the Taliban got to sit there and basically look at the calendars and look at the clocks and be like, OK, well, we fight this thing out for a while, but we keep some in reserve. We go across the border to Pakistan and we just wait it out. That's exactly what they did. But we lost a lot of particularly a lot of brave Marines during that period fighting. A childhood friend of mine was there in Helmand province. And I remember, you know, we came back, talked to him about this stuff. It, it was it was nasty fighting going on there. We lost a lot of Marines. Media didn't even talk about it. I mean, they covered a little. Oh, there's a little bit of a troop thing going on in Afghanistan. But we lost more soldiers in Afghanistan under Obama than we did under Bush. Does anyone even know that? 
Does anyone even understand that? No, of course not. Because the anti the anti-war movement disappeared because the anti-war left is disingenuous. Right. They're really just a bunch of Marxists trying to undermine U.S. foreign policy abroad. If they had been consistent, I'd say, well, good for them, because I do think the Bush administration pushed for too much conflict in too many places. But for them, it's really just a tool for the anti-war left. It's a tool of politics, the pretense that they care so much about our soldiers or they care about humanitarian losses in these countries. They really don't. It's about what works as a political instrument of bludgeoning the other side. And then when Obama's in office, oh, no, we got to back off this. And that now war now Libyan war is fine. Now, you know, whatever we got to do is fine. You're going to see the same thing with covid. Be prepared for that. It's going to be disgusting. Do you think CNN's going to have a covid death tracker up if Biden takes office every day? How many deaths? How many deaths? How many deaths? You think that's going to happen? Oh, want to make a prediction right now? All of a sudden, the deaths from covid will just be a thing that happens. It's sad, but no, it's not any one person's fault, which is true, by the way. But that mentality has been completely in, in reverse now. It, it's, it's all Trump's fault. Every death is Trump's fault. And they even go so far as to lie to you about the vaccine's uh, mistrust in society. Here's Joe Biden himself saying it. Play clip seven. It's important that people who are in the greatest need get it. I wouldn't hesitate to get the vaccine. But I also want to set uh, um, an example. Uh, but I, I wouldn't hesitate to get the vaccine if, in fact, Dr. Dr. Fauci and these two organizations, whether it's Moderna or Pfizer, who have been extremely responsible, conclude that it is, uh, it is safe and, uh, and, and able to be done. Look, the only reason people question the vaccine now is because of Donald Trump. That's the reason why people are questioning the vaccine, because all the things he says and doesn't say, whether it's it truthful, is it not truthful, the exaggerations. I think we're on a clear path now. We're in a clear path where the international community and national leaders uh, in the scientific community have focused on these two vaccines. They appear to be ready for prime time, ready to be used. And if that continues along those roads, I would take the vaccine. The only reason that people distrust the vaccine is Donald Trump leaves out that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and other Democrats and the media became temporary and situational anti-vaxxers for months leading up to the election because they wanted people terrified and anything, any lie, any tool, any uh, artifice that they had to use to defeat Trump was okay, including spreading anti-vax nonsense, as if the Trump FDA would also be able to collude with Pfizer and Moderna to put out an unsafe or ineffective vaccine. You want to talk about a conspiracy. You want to talk about no evidence for something. But Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden were the ones spreading that poison for months. And now they blame Trump for the poison that they spread. They created a perception among their followers who it's, you know, we're going to see again, who's the real cult? Is it the Democrats or Republicans? Trust me, it's Democrats. Remember the Obama era? They worshiped the guy. It was absurd. But they created the Democrats created the perception that you couldn't trust the Trump FDA. And now they're going to turn around and say, oh, gosh, look at this. People don't trust Trump among our supporters in particular. We're going to have to clean up this mess. 
I mean, they're like the people that light a fire, that they're the ones that commit arson, and then they complain when the firefighters arrive, oh, you guys haven't put out that fire yet. Oh, gosh. You know, really not doing a good enough job here. They're the ones that started this. It's because of them. You think they'll ever admit that? No, never. Of course, that's that's completely absurd. They won't admit that. No, so much easier to just continue to play this game and lie to people. And one of the big lies is that Joe Biden represents some kind of new era of honor in our politics. Joe Biden is a slimy, feckless, reckless, self-interested D.C. swamp creature. That's just the truth. 